Two hours every weekday, covering everything from Torah, Parsha, holidays, and so much more. This is 101.9 High FM, Soul to Soul. 101.9 Chai FM, Chai Chinuch, Torah by G. We are back as we do every Monday between 2 to 3 where we discuss education, what's happening around the world, what's happening in the community, outside the community, how can we influence the world to be a better place, how can we be better people, and just be the right person at the right time, helping and just improving ourselves, the families, our community, the world consistently. A lot happening today on the show, a lot of topics we have. Uh, we're going to be He's got talking about uh, incredible Shabbos that happened uh, in Greece. Uh, details will come a bit uh, soon uh, regarding how people could out of nowhere come and just create something amazing. We are going to be talking a bit about um, health with children, um, dietitians, uh, right eating habits, uh, overweight, etc. That's later on in the show. But we are going to begin with a very interesting topic. Uh, last week, here in studio, uh, we had, uh, in the middle of a discussion, representatives of Koleinu. Nothing to do with that. There was an event that took place in Israel uh, that made a lot of, uh, reached social media very strongly, reached, reached regular media, reached everybody. A very interesting story happened there. It happened about two, three weeks ago uh, that a girl... A young girl was attacked by the entrance of her house uh, by somebody she could never have dreamt. He's a threat to her in any way. And thank God she knew exactly how to react, exactly what to do. And thing was over within seconds. However, about some time afterwards, uh, her family released a civilian's video, a camera of the whole incident. And within 24 hours since the uh, video went on to social media, media, the attacker was arrested. That happened last week while we were talking. The video was released on Saturday night in the middle of the night. It came out to the public pretty much Sunday. And by Monday evening, the guy was arrested. So not 24 hours, maybe a bit more than 24 hours. However, that raised a lot of questions here in uh, the community by many people. A, are our kids trained and know how to respond? But another thing came to it. And it's not so much about um, teaching our kids because we've done that on the show a lot. We've spoken to professionals, to educators, to schools. That's not our topic for today. The big question that came was actually catching the threat in the community. What the community did, it put up cameras and the guy was arrested within 24 hours of the release. How important is that and how is that really in reality here in our community? So if you want to know anything about what's reality or not reality in the community, insecurity, there's one person to speak to, which, kindly enough, is here in studio with us, Mark von Yosfeld from CAP. I'm sure everybody knows. Uh, um, even once I say your name, I think everybody knows that you're from CAP and you're from here. But good afternoon, Mark. Thank you so much for being with us. Good afternoon, Rabbi, and thank you so much for having us. And uh, good afternoon to all your listeners. Okay. So today, our, our topic today is about um, security, um, safety, but not so much from the crime point of view. I'm sure there's other sh- shows that work with deal with that. I mean, we have touched on this in the show uh, quite a bit as well. But I want to talk today specifically about cameras, which means I'm, I'm sure you've seen the video of this child who um, 
was attacked in a very unexpected way, and thank God the person, the attacker, who was a threat for the community, was arrested very fast. Thing is like this: Is it in reality to have these cameras installed here in the community, in public areas, in houses? I mean, here we live more in houses. Over there was a case of a building. Sure. It's a bit different. Um, and what are the risks? What was we going to have to get to? Um, is it safe to put cameras in, in South Africa? Tell us a bit about that world. So, firstly, thanks again for having us. It's always a pleasure to be uh, at Chai and uh, in your new studio, which is lovely. <laughs> but, um, yeah, I think uh, there's a couple of things. Look, I'm not a technical guy. So, okay. you know, when one talks about CCTV, there's so many different technical aspects, you know, the type of frame rate that it records at, the storage. So, obviously, one should consult with, uh, you know, the various technical people to get the right understanding in terms of what you're trying to achieve. But, but generally, CCTV… On the safety side, let's see. Yeah. So, so, generally, CCTV has two purposes. Uh, obviously, there's an investigative purpose, you know. Uh, it allows you unquestionably to see exactly what happened, when it happened, how it happened, you know. So, all of the events leading up to, during, and obviously post whatever it is that you, you're worried about uh, and then second is is it does have some level of preemptive ability in other words in public spaces and airports and shopping centers and communities you know CCTV throughout the world uh, has been deployed en masse and uh, the technology has become a lot cheaper, uh, and there's amazing things that one can do uh, with CCTV specifically in the public space. So even without the investigation purposes of seeing what happened and who happened and what's going on, does it have an actual um, help in the area as a threat to anybody who's doing something wrong? Yeah, sure. So so as I said, really, you know, everything in security has got a pro and a, and a con, right? There's never the okay. silver bullet, so to speak. But. You know, from a CCTV point of view, CAP recently has uh, installed, together with partners of ours, uh, 105 poles throughout our communities. Uh, I mean, they look like spaceships on, on poles, silver domes. I'm sure you've seen them and yeah, some of the listeners have seen them. Yeah, to to our kids on the way to school. Yeah. yeah. So, <laughs> okay. so believe it or not, the, the cameras aren't hidden in the domes, which we've had some interesting questions around that. But, um, you know, primarily we focused on this initial rollout on using license plate recognition, uh, which is, you know, is what it says. Uh, it recognizes a number plate on a, on a a car, it queries that number plate against a database of wanted vehicles, both by the police and obviously within our own internal structures. Uh, we've got quite sophisticated data sets as well that it's querying against that. So, you know, if you've got a person that's on your watch list, so to speak, uh, whether it's a child abuser or, you know, an actual criminal involved in other types of crime, then uh, that would alert you to their presence of the vehicle. You'd have an idea of where it is. But that's their vehicle. How about in Correct. public spaces like uh, community events or schools? So I think at this, uh, look, there's technology, you know, there's so many different things with the CCTV because it's it's really about collating data and then having that data assessed. You know, in this instance, your data is uh, video, it, but it's also time stamped. It's also day stamped. It's also got all other types of metadata in the back end. But, you know, there is facial recognition. There is uh, very sophisticated self-learning systems that are being deployed throughout the world. There's uh, different types of uh, algorithms that you can uh, detect uh, objects. So different types of objects, people, vehicles, uh, you know, a painting that gets taken off a wall. So really, depending on the on the application and what it is that you're trying to detect from a preemptive perspective, or let's call it an early warning perspective, there is technology available, but generally that technology is, is quite cost inhibitive in terms of a private home. Okay. So uh, before we, we we're going to have to get to speak about private homes and about the risk in private homes, because I understand that it, there's also concerns about putting some kind of cameras in a private home. Before that, we do have to take a short ad break and we will be right back this is soul to soul on 101.9 high fm 
FM We are back and we're in the middle of a fascinating discussion with Mark from CAP and we've just uh, we just started talking about the uh, importance of cameras and making the place around us safe now we we ended off right before the break discussing about cameras in our private homes and I want to start right with the beginning um, somebody that I've mentioned to about the importance of having cameras cameras uh, we were discussing the whole situation that happened in Israel that we said before that of a child who was um, abused and the abuse was um, attacked and the attacker was caught very shortly afterwards and they said well there's a massive risk to put a camera on your private home because any technology person any hacker could stand in the street log into your cameras and you're putting your family and house in real danger how accurate is that? Yeah, so look, today I think uh, anything that's connected to, to the web, you know, and to internet uh, can be hacked. Um, that's even people. Uh, yeah, <laughs> if they put a chip in our brain, you know, perhaps one day. We're all connected I read an interesting web, yeah. uh, article <laughs> that there was someone trying to develop, you know, like a chip that you could kind of connect. But anyway, I think, yeah, so anything that you do connect, obviously one uh, has uh, one would have those concerns around uh, external parties being able to, you know, log into that network, see what's happening, etc. Uh, there obviously are ways to prevent that. But uh, the average person, I think, is maybe a little bit technologically inept. And so, you know, if, if that is of concern to people, then there is also always an option of just doing stuff. standalone system without uh, any access to the internet you know you lose a lot of functionality you lose a, a lot of convenience um, you know being able to have an app on your phone that you can remotely check into your cameras and all those kinds of things but you know if that's something that you're worried about then ultimately you can just not connect it to the internet and we not almost forget that we have that option of cameras without internet yeah exactly okay. so you know so um, for example in my home you know I have that um, you know cameras so I, with I, no web yeah I, I think the, the you know the reality is for a private home user uh, to rely on any form of preemptive benefit from a camera is quite low you know so what I mean by that practically you know we're not going to go and review you and I 24 hours worth of video footage and see exactly what happened in our home when it happened um, you know we're going to rely on, on you know our child minders that are in the property to tell us about something that happened you know whether it was a fight with the kids or right. you know whatever the case is you know we're going to rely on your child to come to you and I'm sure the experts that you've had before on child behavior and all these kinds of things you know would have spoken about the various things that parents should be be concerned about and you're going to use one of those triggers one of those events to then say okay well maybe something's happening at home none of us are going to go and review it every single day and you know and run analytics on it I doubt that that's going to happen you know unless maybe no, we're talking years. about normal usage and normal yeah, behavior so, so my view on it is that you know if you want to have eyes and uh, ears in your home so to speak so that's from a, an investigative perspective you can go back you can look at it and you can see what happened and how it happened and all these kinds of things there's great value in that and and then you know if you're concerned about the privacy issues and, and all that kind of stuff don't connect it to the internet um, and it, it, the way you view the community in a reality perspective are we in a reality that if somebody does find out that something happened in this home there was an invasion there was a danger there was a crime there was an abuse or whatever it is do people really go back and look um, get a hold of authorities do authorities really make the effort to find the people that did it is it worth the effort or is it kind of what happened happened there's not much we can do no so I think you know obviously depending on the cases and depending on the sensitivity one may find uh, you know some reluctance to report it be it to the authorities to us to anyone um, you know if it's a serious case that uh, you know people just don't want other people to know about but I think what uh, do you define a serious case uh, because God forbid a rape or something like that you know um, you know so that do people really would trust authorities here and go back 
Um, yeah, look, in our experience, it is reported, you know, but uh, but sometimes, and, and, you know, there's lots of uh, research on this, you know, victims of, God, God forbid, a rape, you know, generally may not even report it for, you know, their own personal reasons, which I'm sure we can all understand and relate 100%, to. A hundred percent, but not, so, not only about that, but from your experience, the, the authorities do work nicely together sure, and they do respond and sure. things are happening. Look, we've got challenges, you know, we'd be, uh, it would be naive of me and or anyone, I think, to say that there aren't significant challenges. The, those have been acknowledged, you know, by the various role players uh, as well. Um, you know, so we do have challenges, but I think, you know, there are good people. There are good people throughout the system that uh, want to add value, want to bring those that are responsible for, you know, horrendous crimes to, to book. And, and so we should trust that process. And uh, I know certainly from a CAP point of view, you know, we will do everything that we can to support victims, no matter the type of incident. Uh, we have limited resources, but we'll do whatever we can within that limit to, to help and support people through the process and to work with the various authorities. So I want to hear about that a second. I'll tell you why, even though we're going a bit off topic. topic. One of the things that we do speak quite often about here in the show is um, anxiety rates in South Africa. And part of the reasons that we are experiencing so much anxiety, which we do have later on, we'll hear from the health expert about what we're eating and what that's doing to us. But, um, <laughs> or we won't, or we'll hear other topics. But um, knowing that uh, people are going through um, different kinds of crimes and Many times I hear from victims of uh, robberies and break-ins and things, the feeling that there is nothing to do about it. The only thing is you could do is another fence and another camera and another guard, and there's nothing about fighting back. Almost this helplessness feeling of, I don't know if anybody even cares. Mm. I'm sorry to say it so strongly. Um, what What is your experience in that area? So I think you know I think the natural tendency of human beings is to to try and reach out and to look to do more. You know I think sometimes the the channels that we we looking into might not necessarily have the desired impact. You know so something that that CAP has always been very very strong about is this this uh, idea of reporting things uh, preemptively. You know so we've got a famous catchphrase: two or more men that you don't know in a residential area. In other words, you know please don't report someone on Lou Botha or I, I know I stopped you know. walking with my wife at night. Because of, yeah. <laughs> So, so we've got this catchphrase that we've kind of used, and, and, and how, where that came from was this concept, you know, that uh, when you said, like, report suspicious activity, one of the, uh, the members on our, our board, our volunteer members, said, you know, his mother's never seen anything suspicious in her life. And so we went back to the analysts and we said, look, guys, this is what people think, you know. Can we clarify it? And what they did is they looked at most of the violent crime that gets reported to us, and in all instances of that violent crime, barring maybe, you know, 10 uh, cases that I can think of this year, there were two or more men that had perpetrated that attack. So so the rule to the general community is if you see two or more men in your street or in your neighboring street, that's not a main thoroughfare, you know, and you've never seen them before, no matter whether they're in the tattered clothing or in the most upmarket car, report them, um, you know, and let us do our work together with the police to try and, and mitigate that, you know. So if we look at the call volumes, let's say over the last 10 years, they've remained pretty constant. In other words, you know, the perception that people have that, you know, crime's out of control and, and everything is collapsing hasn't directly translated into people calling in more. And, and you know, we can spend more money on, on security, and it's important, you know, electric fencing, cameras, all these kinds of things. But that's, you know, from a preemptive point of view, if you can get phone calls into the call center, if we can now know all of a sudden that there's these problems in the community where people don't know these people, that is far more important in terms of preventative security than, you know, any electric fence we can stick up and, and not to mitigate that. It's important. But, you know, there coming back to the, the community, I just want uh, well, that's about that. There is a thought in the community in a way that, um, and we'll, I'll say this very carefully because we are on radio, um, that the people that you need to report in and the crimes that we could need to look out for 
is a color or a gender or a specific appearance of style, etc. Is that any factor that you would no. expect people to look into? No. So we, we say to residents, it's very straightforward, two or more men. Um, I've given you the basis for why we say that. Uh, color is not a factor, you know. Um, so it is gender a bit. You're saying it men. is gender a bit, you know, and then that's from a violent crime point of view. So I'm saying, you know, hijackings, armed robbery driveways, house robberies, you know, et cetera. The violent crimes, we're not talking about, you know, uh, shoplifting and, and that kind of stuff. Um, so from the, the violent crime point of view, as I said, 90%, in excess of 90% of most cases are perpetrated generally by two or more men. Um, you know, and that's that's from our point of view. You know, if the if the community is sensitive enough to who is your neighbours and who is in your street, and uh, we're aware of you know kind of who our community is, you'll be able to pick up very quickly people that uh, you know ordinarily stick out, so to speak, and that you know you've never seen. And and all you need to do is report that to the police and report that to us, and uh, you know let the professionals uh, do what they need to do. And we're not saying in all those cases that those people are suspicious and are criminals. We're saying, look, let us assess that. And, uh, you know, through the training that we do with our guys and, and obviously within the police structures, you know, they've got their relevant protocols of how they deal with these kinds of things. So, you know, I think that's one of the very important things. The other important thing is, you know, obviously uh, from our point of view, and, and, and it affects all different types of crime is, you know, I often use the example that if you're going to employ a financial manager in your business, you would vet them, right? They're going to deal with your money and they're going to deal with all right. of these kinds of things. And I th- we find very often that the people that we're employing in our own home, there hasn't been a sufficient level of scrutinization in terms of who that person is. You know, and so like CCTV in the context of that, as we've said, is really reactive. You, you're looking into the events of the past and that doesn't necessarily mean you would have prevented the you know, whichever type of incident may have happened. So in our experience, if you've vetted someone and you've gone into extreme detail in terms of who that individual is and are they trustworthy and did you polygraph them and run their fingerprints and check with, that stuff's very important uh, in terms of who you leave your children with, in terms of... So I was going to ask you about that because I know CAB offers that option of looking into your domestic worker and her background and see um, if she's involved or in any crime or any level. Have you ever had people in the community ask you to do a check a background check regarding abuse, regarding uh, inappropriate um, uh, behavior, regarding anything not to do with crime? Yeah, we have. And? Look, we're not experts in, in that particular subject matter, you know, specifically when it comes to children. So generally speaking, you know, we've, we've developed relationships over the years with various organizations that are more equipped to deal with that. You know, CAP is, is here to fight violent crime and to deal with, you know, effectively an enemy that comes from outside in. Um, you know, our experience in dealing with people sometimes that have, you know, done horrible things internally within the home is not really where our our expertise lies. But as I said, we've we've handed those kinds of cases which are very sensitive to, you know, other professionals and policing professionals that we work with to to deal with and follow up and investigate. And I think in most cases, uh, I'm speaking off memory, there have been positive outcomes in those cases. So you, but you are saying that there is a high awareness of checking. When people come and check crime um, about, like, theft, they also want to check um, appropriate behavior. Yeah, look, you wouldn't be able to assess, you know, based on a person's ID or their fingerprints unless they've been convicted of a, a, a crime like that. You wouldn't necessarily know Which is an important factor sure. if they were convicted you of it. Sure. Yeah. Uh, but I think, you know, the vetting is much deeper than just that. You know, we, we, we should know where they live and, you know, not just an area but the actual detail. You should know where their children go to school and who they're married to and where that person works. So, you know, I guess the, the message to the community is that, you know, uh, when you are hiring people, vet them. You know, if you need help, CAP can help you. If uh, you need 
need other help, we can direct you into in you know in, in terms of that to other professionals. But but the reality is vet them, and then obviously in terms of all the technology that's available, you know, take use of it, but be responsible. You know, nothing, as I said, comes without a risk in security. Unfortunately, you'll do X; it might have a positive you know outcome on on certain things, but it also has a downside. So you know, in the co- in the context of the cameras, you know, if you connect it to the internet and you have the app on your phone and all of those wonderful things, it does expose you to other types of risk that maybe you didn't think exactly. of. So, so if we end off uh, um, and just bottom line, any listener out there that's listening and saw the video that what's going on in Israel and saw the ability of uh, and the risk and, and how you can actually protect the community, bottom line, is it suitable for the community here? Do you recommend it to the South African community to actually um, – Put in the install the cameras. Be connected to some kind of security area, or just so it's not my, the right thing for the right My priority, place. I guess, if I had to prioritize it, and I think you touched on it as well, would be the following: is number one, make sure that you've trained your children and you've uh, listened to all the experts that have come before and taken their advice, and made sure that your child knows to report certain things to you. Secondly, make sure the people that you leave your children with are vetted and you know absolutely everything that you can about those people um, you know and again if you need help on that you, you're welcome to reach out to us and then the third thing is is use technology to be able to vet it you know to val- va- uh, validate any type of uh, thing that might be reported to you so in that regard you know I don't think it's a bad thing to have cameras in your home and nanny cams and all these kinds of things just uh, you know as I said there are some downsides like privacy issues and stuff like that which one should think of but you can go off grid if, you, if you it's something that it. you're worried about. Okay. We, we do have to end, but one question came in from a listeners, and you know what? Listeners are the top of the list by us. No problem. Question for Mark. Hi. What is the proper answer to give should a criminals ask how many people are in the house? You don't have to answer Ricky the question. Uh, well, yeah. if you have a gun to your head, you do answer questions. Yeah. So, so I'll say do, that from experience. Yeah, so, I mean, I think the, the reality – look, it's a tough, very tough question. Um, you know – my, my advice is like this. You know, obviously one should try everything to avoid ever being in a situation where you have lost control. But even in those cases, you know, if, uh, in other words, where you, you, God forbid, have people in your home and all of these kinds of things, I don't think you need to, you shouldn't escalate the situation. In other words, the, the way you deal with that situation is going to, in, I would say in most cases, uh, influence the way that the suspect deals with you. So remain calm. You know, don't lie. Uh, you know, give them what they want, de-escalate the situation as much as you can and try to take some form of leadership. So I know, you know, for example, many years ago, there was a case that we dealt with where a gentleman was held up in his home. Uh, he was leaving his home. He was going to his garage and the, the, it was sectionalized off. In other words, it wasn't like a garage leading into his house. And he was confronted by a number of suspects in his, in his uh, garage. And they said, listen, we want to go into your house. And, and he took control. He said, listen, gents, we can go in, but let me go in. My wife and my children are there. And if they get chaotic and start screaming, you know, then it's going to be problematic for you. It's going to be problematic for us. So through, I guess, remaining uh, calm, showing some form of leadership, he was able to try and mitigate the risks that, that could follow. You know, it's very tough in that situation to think of all of these kinds of things. You know, but but as I said, just remain calm. Don't lie. Don't do anything that could escalate the I situation. I think the answer to the question was be honest and yeah. just stay genuine. Yeah. Mark, you know. thank you so much for being here. Um, I think uh, if one thing we could say is that your organization does give a lot of um, strength and hope in the community and 
and just hope that we won't I don't know should I say we hope we won't need you anymore <laughs> listen I don't know not we, fair we, I don't know if that's a core fair no <laughs> please go do something else you know, do, just uh, be successful in other areas so, I guess <laughs> Rabbi thank you for having us look from a cap point of view you know we are a communal organization we're deeply devoted to the protection of our community we'll do absolutely everything we can to to uh, mitigate any further risks and please God please God one day we shouldn't need cap Amazing. please God thank you Mark thank you so much for thank being you with very us. much take care Okay, so that was uh, a, a very interesting conversation we had regarding the security issues. It took a bit longer than I thought, and we have still so many uh, topics here on the show. We're going to take a short ad break, and we'll be right back. Two hours every weekday, covering everything from Torah, Parsha, holidays, and so much more. This is 101.9 High FM, Soul to Soul. 101.9, we are back. But before we continue on on the next topic, we have, I have an announcement. Um, Raymond Ackerman, the founder of Pick and Pay, said, giving back to the communities from where we drive our business is good business, and that is the foundation of Pick and Pay. Be upgrading by upgrading our stores and offering. We are constantly giving back to our communities. Now, Pick and Pay. Culinary has undergone a massive facility, and they want you to be part of the lounge this Thursday with massive prizes and special deals that put Black Friday to shame. Clear your calendar from 8 a.m. Plus, your favorite High FM teams will also be coming to you live from Culinary Pick and Pay. Come on. Come on down and join us for outside broadcast. Don't miss it. We can't wait to see you there. Okay, that was a message from Pick and Pay. So our next topic today, um, about a year ago, I think it was about a year ago. It was almost exactly a year ago. Almost exactly a year ago. So we had here on show um, Eliana Klein, who started a program um, training parents about um, how to make sure your kids have the right approach towards eating and just making sure that eating does not become a massive issue and just stays healthy and proper and really seeing that, uh, um, you know, we want to make sure as all Jewish parents, moms specifically, want to make sure their kids are eating enough, but we don't want to overfeed them. We don't want them to, uh, to ruin their natural connection to uh, their body needs. A year later, um, sixty families training um, in the in between, and another course is going out. Let's hear what has changed, what happened, and what's what's happening in that area. So, good afternoon, Great Eliana. To be Thank again. you for being here. It's hard uh, to believe it's a year. Okay. So where should we start? Um, Let's start with uh, the you know we spoke last year, but it was kind of in theory, and now we're and now you've practiced with many, many families. And let's talk a bit about um, the approach today. I mean, the reality today is that kids leave home early in the morning. They don't really have a proper breakfast. They take Mm. something to school. It doesn't really work. They come home hungry. There's not a really natural, normal um, eating time. How does that affect the kids today? So so I'm going to go back a little bit. Go ahead. The, The first thing I've noticed working practically in the field is something which I experienced in my own personal life and something I've seen with the families I work with to lesser and to more extents depending on the extremity of the situation. 
But when feeding goes wrong, which is either the parents are worried that the children eat too much or they eat too little or they're too fat or they're too thin or they won't eat vegetables. Or can, worried in general. Or, yeah, or just <laughs> general anxiety. You're talking about anxiety. It's a, um, it really impacts the parent's ability and relationship with the child in general. You feed your child more than three times a day. And if every experience and interaction of feeding your child is riddled with conflict, anxiety, fighting, stress, it really diminishes your ability to actually enjoy parenting. This is something I experienced when I was going through this and how I came to this. And with the parents I work with, it's very, very apparent. And the, like, over, it's like this general like, shadow of anxiety which is over them every single mealtime is not going the way they want. Parents don't have the right expectations of what to expect of children. They expect them to eat a full balanced meal three times a day and two snacks. They don't understand how children eat, how children grow. Do parents do that? People don't do that, <laughs> even though there's this idea that your child has to eat in a certain way. There's also a huge amount of pressure, and I think social media and general media really exacerbates this, of five superfoods which guarantee your child won't have ADD and how to guarantee your child is the healthiest they could be and they must eat chia seeds and omega-3s and salmon, and here's your child who only wants to eat noodles and cheese. So you're saying that basically today feeding your kids is the source of stress between parents and damages relationships? It damages relationships in, in, in very real ways. You know, if every single meal you are constantly thinking, what will my child eat? And then you start begging them and fighting them and saying, eat three spoons and then you can play in the iPad and eat three spoons and then you can have a sweet. It damages the current relationship with the child. That's why we talk about the feeding dynamic and it, and it definitely damages the child's future relationship as an adult with food and their body. So it really does have a long-lasting impact. Of course, there are more extreme cases and less extreme cases. Um, but I've worked with like over over the the spectrum, and we really do see that. That's why I'm. That's one of the reasons I'm so passionate about it is because if you eliminate all stress to do with feeding with your child, and as a, your wife could probably tell you more about this, I'm sure is you really um, make space for a much happier relationship with your child and a much happier parenting experience. You don't always worried, well, I'm not feeding them properly, I'm doing something wrong. If you're a parent who's naturally guilty, naturally anxious, and your child doesn't eat well and you don't have the tools to help them move along and help accept them the way they are and put in the right structures, you'll be constantly anxious. I work with parents where every meal is is a source of anxiety, and that really takes a toll because it happens so often. And we're talking about younger kids, older kids. So I, I work with parents from age, say, 18 months to 15 years, that's who I've worked with over the... 18 months is already a source of stress for parents with, about feeding their kids? 18 months is the worst source of stress, let me tell you why. Developmentally, when a child is six months, they're excited by food, it's all exciting, it's all interesting. They'll pretty much eat anything you put in front of them or put on a spoon. When they get to 18 months, their independence starts developing, right? They, okay. Their growth slows down and they start learning to say no. They need to say no. They need autonomy. So it's a psychological and a physical combination of factors, which makes them start refusing food. They used to eat everything. Now they eat three things. They used to eat three meals a day. Now they'll eat one meal a day with snacks. And that's where a lot of the fighting starts. I love working with the parents at this age because if you prevent it at that age, it's so easy to set up this, the foundations for success. So it seems like you're, lo you're stepping in across um, uh, on a line between um, eating habits, but also between the struggle of power between kids and parents. And it's a lot about um, boundaries, relationship, discussion, and not always about food. You absolutely hit the nail on the head. The beautiful thing about the model I work with is, is it is exceptionally boundaried. And we basically take a big line and we draw it down the middle of the page or the table or the plate. And we say, this is your job and this is your child's job. 
all the struggles come when you start doing your child's job. And, you know, so you talk about boundaries. The more boundaries you can be in doing your role properly, the better set up you are for success. The problem when it comes to feeding is that parents are not taught this. They're taught what to feed their children, and they all know. I've never worked with a family who doesn't know what a balanced meal is, who doesn't know, like, give your child food and vegetables and starch and protein. Um, I don't offer nutritional advice because I'm not a qualified dietitian. But I've never met a parent who's feeding their child like exceptionally neglectfully. The the conflict comes in is because they don't know what their job is. They think it's their job to make sure their child finishes their plate every meal. They think it's their job to ensure their child's body grows in a certain way. So if their child is bigger, they want to try to get their child to be smaller. They can't accept that this is the child's body. So you're basically saying that if you're having a struggle with your the way your child's eating, you need therapy. Kind of. <laughs> One hundred percent. Parents will say to me, my child's not eating properly. Should I put them in therapy? So I say to them, let's do this course together and let's see where we go. But if you can't let go and implement what I'm teaching you, theoretically, you need another stage of intervention. And the states they'll go to first, second, third states of intervention. Okay, I do want to end that if anybody wants to ask me on anything about anything about regarding the boundaries regarding um, uh, just anything around food or anything that you have to add to this conversation, please let us know what you think about what's happening here. 061-895-1019 is the WhatsApp line. 061-895-1019. Or you could send us a SMS. 34519 is the SMS line. Okay. So back to what we were talking about. So you're bas- are, are you saying to parents, go to therapy? Or, or so, what so can what? we give them on a practical so, level yeah, of so, tools? So what I'm saying without self-promoting, but of course I'm going to, is <laughs> come to my course or read one of the books which I'll recommend you to. They're amazing resources online and books which I'll lend you with pleasure or you can buy yourself on Take-A-Lot or Amazon. Therapy won't help because we need a practical framework of what to do when my child comes to the meal and says, I don't like the supper. I'm going, I don't want it. Please make me something else. We need a practical framework of when your child says, Five minutes after the meal where they chose not to eat, well, now I'm hungry, make me a snack. We need practical solutions in the emotional framework. So the emotional framework is building trust with your child around eating, trusting them that their body knows what they need to eat and how to eat. But we also need very practical things. How often do I offer how often do I offer snacks? Very practical things. So we'll t- I'll talk to a parent and they'll say, my child isn't hungry for supper at 5 o'clock. So we'll go back to the day. Well, they've been snacking from 1 o'clock till 5 o'clock. They don't have an appetite. Of course they're not hungry. That's a very simple thing within the framework of trust. Okay, so, there, so basically it's also about um, timing. and it's, it's, So we talk about the what, the when, and the where. And those are the parents' responsibilities. And we talk about the how much and the... If is a child's responsibilities. And if you get that very simple definition right, everything's right. But practically, it's very nuanced. It's very complex. It's very practical and very profound at the same but time. There's, an, there's other areas about um, that it's not about the what, the when, uh, the, the when and the where. The what? The, the what, the when, and the where is the, the parent's and the job. And the if and the how much is the child's job. Okay, but how much should the parents be struck about boundaries, and about consequence, about food? And I'll give you an example about consequence. Um, so many people have told me that they go out for Shabbos meals Friday yeah. night or whatever it is with their kids, and half the meal they tell their kids, come eat soup, come eat chicken, come eat this, come eat this. Nah, 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 nah. I'm playing. It's exciting. It's another house friend. It's a friend. It's whatever. And then the parents bring the child home, put him into bed Friday night. Everybody's tired, and the child said, but I'm hungry. So then what? So there are different kinds of consequences. I thought you were going to say the consequences. They come to dessert and they say, I want dessert, and they haven't eaten a meal. And I was going to... Ah, that's too easy for this. That's too easy. (laughs) That's that's very common, and we really don't advise that. Um, We tell our children, 
in a general situation, in a home situation, I tell my children, this is the meal. You don't have to eat anything you don't want to, but there's no food after this. And my children have learned now that there's no uh, – every single night, about two years ago, my four-year, my six-year-old, so she was four, she would get into bed and say, Mommy, I'm hungry. Okay, what Jewish mother can send their child to bed hungry? Okay. I've never met one. <laughs> so what would I do? She would come out of her bed, and I would make her a big bowl of cereal, and she would eat two spoons and say, I'm done, and get into her bed. Now, I was super irritated because I was just not wanting to be feeding her at this time of day. She had eaten – and it was really just a delaying consequence. So when we put this into place, I said, this is the meal. Everyone can eat whatever they want to eat. They don't have to eat whatever they don't want to eat. But there's no food besides a fruit or a vegetable before bedtime. And maybe three times in the last year, she's gone to the kitchen and helped herself to an apple or a banana. And I put that in place to kind of be a bit flexible. But in, in the beginning, she had to go to sleep hungry sometimes. Um, she would eat at supper and she would never go to sleep hungry. And if and she really works. genuinely was hungry, there was always that fruit or vegetable option. So for me, that worked really well in our family. And three times maybe she was hungry, she would help herself to a fruit or vegetable. Okay, we, d- we have to take a short break. And yeah. when we come back, we'll continue because you mentioned something about uh, the dessert. And I do want to ask about that. 101.9, a short break, and we will be right back. This is Soul to Soul on 101.9 High FM. 101.9 High FM, We are back, and we're in the middle of a fascinating discussion with Eliana Klein, who trains parents in um, food relationships, I guess, between parents and kids, the struggle, the frustration, the anger, the anxiety, everything that goes around the relation of food. And... Right before the break, you mentioned something about um, when the kids come at the end of the meal and suddenly show up for dessert, and you've said something, and I said it's too easy, but then you kind of mentioned something along the lines of, um, something along along the lines of, of, don't fall into that, don't give them, what were you saying about that? So I'm going to say this, try to summarize this really quickly, this is the stage of the course when I teach it with parents, is I leave it right till the end, because it's so hard to understand. And it's so counter to most things everyone's been taught. But basically, it goes like this. If you want a child to grow up with a healthy relationship to food, you cannot attach any moral value to food. All foods are morally equal. Of course, they're not nutritionally equal. But we never say to a child, you can't have a chocolate because it's got 14 grams of sugar and an apple has one gram. We say chocolate is bad for you. Chocolate is junk. Chocolate is going to make your teeth fall out. It's going to make Isn't you happy. Isn't it junk and bad? It's, bad is a moral term. Bad okay. is to steal something. Bad is to hurt somebody. Food has got different nutritional value. It's a very different approach. But one will come and say, well, it steals my health. As soon as you start putting moral values on food and calling something junk and something different, all you do is make a child want it more. All you do is, you make, number one, you make them want it more. Number two, you, they experience shame when they eat it. Number three, they develop anxiety and fear around of it. They're confused because, you know... Maybe their teacher gives it to them, but their mummy won't give it to them. <coughs> Excuse me. All it does it make, is it make it more exciting. It does exactly what you're trying to stop. Is it makes junk food, which I don't really use that term at home at all, and I teach the parents I work with not to use it. It makes it into such an exciting, um, attractive thing. It makes them want to. So the, the more you take it away from them, the more they want to give it back. A hundred percent. And then parents say, well, do we have an open sweet cupboard? Absolutely not. A lot of questions. I think With I'm, younger children, we offer 
in a very structured way opportunities to have unlimited access to junk food in a very structured way. So once or twice a week at snack time, I'll tell my children, come for a snack, and on the table is a whole box of biscuits and fruit and milk and crackers, and they can choose as much as they want. It gives them a learning opportunity. What are they going to do when they leave home and they're 18 and they have a credit card, and now there's a whole world where they can buy whatever food they want. They're going to go out. They're going to binge on it. They're going to overeat on it. You can meet adults who are 50 or 60, and their parents never let them have chocolate for whatever reason, and and they will. And they cannot control themselves the around it. They do not it. enjoy it. You do not enjoy six slabs right. of chocolate. Your body does not actually like it, but because they feel so deprived and so restricted. And that's how we get into emotional eating. That is exactly, exactly. how. Exactly. We, right, we, we, we may have to give course. it. Yeah, but we may have to give it another time because, unfortunately, time okay. is running out. We do have okay. another topic. And, wow, time flies when you're having fun. If anybody, just in one sentence, anybody want to be in touch with you, how do they get a hold of you? The best way is either via my website, which is www.feedingcoach.co.za. Else you can WhatsApp me on 78 139-9075. That was Eliana Klein. Thank you so much for being with us. And the show has to get to an end. We are about to uh, end. However, there's one thing that we cannot not think about. Um, some time ago, uh, we had um, a, a, a situation here in South Africa with people landed in here right before Shabbos, didn't know what to do and how to manage with it. Um, and it was a big thing in the community, helping 13 people find a place. This last Shabbos, one person hosted about 150 to 180 guests without any um, notice except for a couple of hours before. And I don't know how you get to such a stage, um, but I'm here to ask him. Good afternoon, Rabbi Hendler. Thank you so much for being with us. Can you hear me? Uh, we just I think we just lost Rabbi Handler from Greek. So I'm sure you're going to hear online about this story in many, many other places. Unfortunately, um, okay, unfortunately, it seems like we lost the rabbi um, who did such an amazing act with the El Al flight that happened on Mitzvah Shabbos. It's a long, going on story. Um, hello and good afternoon. Are you with us? Yes, yes, I have. How are you? Good. So, unfortunately, our show is really running out, and we have, like, literally one minute for the show or two minutes for the show. Um, tell us a bit about how can you a person bring themselves to such a situation of uh, having 180 guests for Shabbos with a three-hour notice? Well, that was really a great challenge, and uh, thank God uh, we were able to get organized and get our team together and uh, prepare for that. Um, and I think that it was a lot of Seattle Dishmaya to do that. Um, it's a, uh, I, you know, looking back, I don't understand how we managed uh, that, that much and to make it so nice. But I think that uh, the most important thing which everybody could take home is that, you know, it doesn't have to be in such a grand way to, to, to make a difference. You know, even if someone uh, invites a friend home for a Shabbos meal, someone that is lonely, someone doesn't have a family. Um, it, it's the same chesed. It's the same important thing. Maybe you don't. It's not glamorous. Maybe you don't get in the headlines of the newspaper, but that's basically what what so really that's counts. That's a fascinating and, thing. Uh, Rabbi, un, un, this is what I tell people. This Rabbi, also I tell people at the Chabad house. We have people that come and you know on Shabbos and say, "Wow, in Athens and you make Shabbos meal, you have so many people." And I said, yeah, you know, back home also, invite people. This is what what really makes a difference. That's fascinating. We do have to hear so much more about the story. Unfortunately, we really ran out of time. Um, I'm going to um, give a word to the listeners, please, God, in 
if you agree to that, we will have to make a time specifically on this ne- on the next show about this. Um, just the fascinating story that went through on the last flight. And Rabbi, I hope we will we be able to get you on the next show and kind of get to this because we do have to get to an end. Thank you so much for being with us, and we will be in touch. 101.9, another show comes in, and we will be back, please God, next Monday, 2 to 3, discuss Chinuch and education.